I'm thinking that there might be something that one would call musical thinking that only composers know how to do, that there's an intuitiveness to it that I would hesitate to call irrational because the results of it seem so precisely defined. That's Peter Kalkovich, a tutor at St. John's College and author of The Logic of Desire, an introduction to Hegel's Phenomenology of Spirit. In this episode, Peter and I discuss his writing about philosophy and music. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. I'm Joseph Hogan. This is Common Ground. Peter Kalkovich has been a tutor at St. John's College for 40 years. In that time, he's done a lot of thinking, a lot of discussing, and a lot of writing about the relationship between philosophy and music particularly classical music, Bach and Mozart and Wagner. Reading Peter's writing, you can tell that one of his main aims isn't just to think about music as a fine art, but to think about music as itself a way of thinking. Peter's approach allows him to write about and think through music in some surprising or perhaps just unfamiliar ways. He asks how music contributes to the formation of one's opinions, one's beliefs about the world, but then he also writes about music in ways that are familiar but that require a great deal of imagination and precision. Peter asks why music, particularly classical music and sacred music, but also some rock and roll thrown in, why music makes us feel certain ways, gives form to our emotions, in a sense helps us feel our own emotions. We talk about this. We also talk about the study and performance of music as a liberal art and the role and significance of liberal arts education in our current political and economic situation. All that and more is coming up in this episode of Common Ground. So, Peter Kalkavich, thanks very much for coming on the podcast and talking with me. Quite welcome. Nice to be here. So, you write often about classical music, and you approach it from the perspective of what I think many would call philosophy. I don't know if you think of yourself in those terms, that is, as a philosopher, but you certainly use thinkers like Hegel or Nietzsche to think about music. In fact, I think one mark of your writing is your ability really to bring philosophical in- inquiry and aesthetic appreciation into a kind of harmony. What do you often find yourself setting out to do when you write about or lecture on music? What, if anything, do you try to explore or to prove? That's a great question. I think, first of all, uh, <clears throat> one must begin with uh, just an observation that the phenomenon of music raises very deep questions of a philosophic nature, questions about one and many, cause and effect, the um, imitation of conditions and motions of the soul, the role of the intellect in grasping musical structures. So there are topics there aplenty for anyone who wants to take music with any philosophic seriousness. Then there's the other side of it, of course, the particulars of a specific kind of music, whether it's a sacred piece from a Bach uh, work or a love song from Mozart's Magic Flute or Wagner's Tristan and Isolde. So each of those requires a different approach. So you wrote an essay in The Imaginative Conservative called Music and the Idea of a World. Yes. Uh, In that you write, quote, music is the most comprehensive of the liberal arts. I'm wondering what you mean by that. Yes. I think music absorbs... Um, pretty much all of the arts. It has, since the time of Pythagoras and the discovery of the marvelous uh, analogy between small whole number ratios and the most singable intervals, 
<clears throat> uh, uh, music has a profound connection with mathematics, and through mathematics, the mathematical character of nature. Um, Aristotle in the physics observes that really the Pythagorean discovery sets the foundation for a mathematical physics. So there's that side of it. Clearly, uh, uh, the, uh, to the extent that music may be said to persuade the soul or put it into certain shapes and forms is a kind of rhetoric. Uh, in classical music, and by that I mean tonal harmony, the music of Bach and Mozart, music seems to have this uh, grammatical structure. There are places to be in the music as though one, one were fulfilling some syntactic destiny. <clears throat> uh, then, of course, what the music is about, which is about, music is about everything. Um, love, passions of all sort, meditations, glory, grief. So I have a number of questions about that. Um, I, I'll, I'll just quote, I think, I think one of these quotations that I have from you is another way of putting some of the things you just said, and I have some questions about it. Uh, so you write in that very same essay that, quote, music, and I think you were pointing to this, music has an intense personal inwardness and immediate emotional effect and a power to form our character, opinions, and way of life. So I'm wondering if, if you could explore that particular issue. So in a way, it, it just seems to me perhaps counterintuitive because music isn't necessarily language bound, yes. um, but our opinions are language bound. We think in language, not necessarily <clears throat> in music. So why would music have any bearing on the formation of our character That's or our excellent. opinions? It's an excellent question. Plato and Aristotle speak about this at length. They are inheriting an even older tradition that associates the movements of the soul with laws according to which human beings act. And so Aristotle talks about this in the politics, depending on the mode or musical character that a piece of music has, the soul that absorbs it, especially if uh, a human being listens to that particular kind of music repeatedly, takes on that shape. So uh, music of a sober nature makes one sober. Music of a looser nature makes one loose. And we learn often, another point Aristotle makes, by virtue of what we take pleasure in. So depending on what we take pleasure in, and music is very powerful here because it gets inside of us immediately, uh, our opinions are shaped by that. I, as I say, I have a number of questions about that remark as well. I guess there is something that mm -hmm. I do want to explore briefly before mm -hmm. we jump into... Uh, you use a phrase in one of your essays that um, relates to this topic where you start talking about the metaphysics of music or yes. the metaphysical importance of music, yes. which is another claim that might seem to listeners to be in a sense counterintuitive, but in fact, in your writing, you try to explore, uh, explore it. My, my first question is in a sense political or practical. Yes. What you're, what you're describing is um, the importance of music in the liberal arts and in education, obviously, mm -hmm. but we're in a, a current political and economic climate in which um, the tendency is to cut things from curricula, yes. uh, both in primary education and all the way up in higher education. And it seems like music is often the first thing to yes, be cut or among the first things. Do you find yourself having to defend um, the teaching of music in classrooms? Certainly, certainly you, you hear about these cuts at other colleges. What defense would you advance, say, to an, an administration that is thinking about cutting the arts or music? That's an excellent question. Since I am at a school that privileges music insofar as our all-required curriculum 
has two years of music, one year of choral singing and learning music notation for everyone, and another year of uh, music theory, as we might designate it, uh, also uh, with a lot of choral singing. I, it, it doesn't need to be defended here. Constantly inquired into and understood, yes, but not so much defended. And those who have contact with St. John's are impressed positively by the role of music in the program. So to approach the last part of your question, I would say music is justly one of the liberal arts, the classical liberal arts. The primary reason is that music is a form of order. And the order goes deeper into the roots of nature, I believe, than the visual arts. There is no visual art equivalent of the two to one ratio that unmistakably uh, signals the octave. There is nothing in the visual arts, to my knowledge, that signals the three to two ratio and its relation to the perfect fifth. So Pythagoras's grounding of the musical intervals in um, naturally given whole number ratios, subsequently developed by modernity into the overtone series, shows, I think, that there is a profound connection between music and order, indeed mm -hmm. natural order. So that would be one reason. We haven't yet gotten to all the reasons. I think another reason would be the ethical and political implications of music. So the kind of order it is, is on the one hand intellectual, and on the other hand moral, political, and emotive. These are great powers. Music is a great power that every educated human being ought to take very seriously. And you can't merely hand wave, you have to study it. Well, I have two questions about that. The first has- Does that make sense? That I, 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 and I, I'd like to ask, so you started um, by describing the actual uh, uh, curriculum that students at St. John's go through when they're yes. learning about music. And it's so interesting that you point out that they are required not just, it's so interesting that they're required to learn music in in general, which is great, I think. Um, but they're required to learn theory, and they're also required to, to sing or to, yes. to uh, play an instrument. Could you talk about why that is? Oh, gladly. The uh, first reason for having all of our freshmen do a lot of singing. By the way, what we sing are Gregorian chant, uh, Bach hymns, harmonized hymns, 16th century polyphony, uh, pieces from uh, uh, operas, perhaps, uh, a wide range of music. But in any case, the, uh, the most obvious reason is that you can't really do theory, music theory, without connecting the often abstract language and visual character of the notes uh, without having an experience. They need to be connected with an experience. And in singing, we are the instrument. We carry the instrument around us all the time. So it's easy to do that. Furthermore, when you get a group of students in a room and they're making music together, they're developing a sense of being a community at St. John's College. If you will, they're becoming friends while they sing. Uh, and so there's a kind of uh, initiation into the communal spirit of St. John's that I think is the deeper reason for having all of our freshmen sing. So I have, I, I'll have a question about that in a moment, but just to get back to um, the, the initial points you were making, you also talked about um, music as having a certain order. Yes. Uh, you were talking about Pythagoras. Um, 
Again, in an essay about music and liberal education, I think you put this well. Uh, you, you say, music moves us sometimes to overpowering emotion. It does so through well-defined structures, as you were talking about, through an order of tones and rhythms. Um, it is, I like this line. It is not the mere sound of drums, but their rhythmic beating that stirs us. Um, here we come upon the central paradox of music, the paradox that defines music as a worthy object of sustained intellectual wonder. Music is the union of the rational and irrational of order and feeling. So could you, could you explore this paradox a bit more and talk about it? So in what manner does music bring together the rational and the irrational? Yeah. And does it harmonize them? Yeah, that's an excellent question. That last part especially is an excellent question. Do they remain two or do, or, are they be, or do they become harmonic? That's the harder and more interesting question. But I'll start with this. When any human being listens to a piece of, listens to a piece of music, uh, the person's moved. It's easy to be moved, especially with music as glorious as that of uh, Bach and Mozart, or for that matter, as powerful as Wagner. We're moved. But then, it's amazing what happens when you can put excerpts from pieces on the board in a classroom with St. John's students, and you look carefully at what was in the music producing that effect. So, goes two ways. You reach for the inherently musical causes of the reaction that we might have. We also gain experience in listening for certain things, so we become better listeners by being more focused on something, listening for something, whether it's a cadence or a peculiar use of a chord or a, a beautiful melody or... Uh, tension and how it's resolved, tension and how it's sustained and then resolved. So all of these things um, that strike us without any, the ear does not need an education in order to be struck by music. The mind is always catching up with what the ear does. But when the mind does try to catch up and we inquire into music, we learn more about music and we learn more about ourselves and our response to it. You've written about this tension, I think, in different terms. Um, and just to bring in the, uh, one of the philosophers, you say, so you, you, you write about Nietzsche, and, and you say, uh, mm -hmm. to borrow terms made famous by Nietzsche, music could not be Dionysian if it were not thoroughly Apollonian, which yes. it must be if it is to be an art at all. Uh, what do you mean? I mean that, for example, you can take the most emotionally overwhelming part of Tristan and Isolde, and once again, if you take a close look at the score and you know enough music theory to search for musical causes, you will find them. You will find that the powerful reaction is grounded in a very intelligent musical decision. Whether I'm not sure decision is the right word for it, but some, something, whatever it was in Wagner that made him say, this is the way the notes should go as opposed to that way. So there is the, the beauty of the enormous specificity and intelligence with which music produces sometimes overwhelming emotional effects. Why it's you, astonishing. Why are you hesitant to call that a decision? Sometimes I'm not sure it's the result of deliberation. Sometimes it seems to be a, a happy stroke of luck. The mm. composer comes to the composer. I don't, I don't know. I don't think it's always deliberation. Maybe most of the time it's not because the composer is searching for something that doesn't exist yet. It's not like you can consult a math book well, and that's, or, a, or a history book or something. It's not, it does not yet exist. 
So whatever is going on, it, it's whatever composition is, is very mysterious to me. Well, that's, that's the reason for the hesitation. And that's well, and I'm just so interested in exploring this hesitation. Uh, could you talk a bit about the process of at least what you understand of the process of composition? Because in many ways, you've been describing this tension between rationality and irrationality on the part of the audience and the experience of the uh, work of music. But at the same time, couldn't something similar be said for the actual creation of the art and that it, it is itself not the product of rationality in any meaningful sense, but of the harmony of the irrational and rational? I don't, that's a very good way to put it. <clears throat> I'm not so sure it's a harmony of the rational and the irrational. The irrational, I think, is coming from the emotional effect that the music has on us. I'm thinking that there might be something that one would call musical thinking that only composers know how to do, that there's an intuitiveness to it that I would hesitate to call irrational because the results of it seem so precisely defined and I don't want to call that irrational. Does that make sense? It is not, it is not rational in the sense of deductive, but I wouldn't want to restrict intelligible and rational and intelligent to deduction. So can, can you talk a bit more about musical thinking and how you would sort of delineate it and describe it in terms <clears throat> other than, say, literary thinking or something like that? Uh, that I wish I could. Uh, it's especially remarkable if one thinks about how composers, uh, and again, for want of a better word, I'll say make decisions, uh, about uh, writing instrumental pieces. What idea they had in mind, how that idea plays itself out. Um, but one thing for sure, what what great composers know how to do is it's it's not the having of the idea but developing its possibilities in remarkable ways you've written that uh, thomas mann thought that schopenhauer celebrated music as no thinker ever did because he made this is the phrase you use he made music metaphysically significant what yes. does it mean for music to have metaphysical significance excellent question and it's in some ways the question that moves me the most uh, first i'll say uh, we are so used to thinking of music as one of two things that get in the way of appreciating its metaphysical significance. One, that it belongs to so-called fine arts and aesthetics. That, I think, strangles the life out of it. It prevents certain basic questions from being raised by consigning music to a category right from the start and preventing it from having a bearing on the question of being or truth. <clears throat> Uh, the second thing that gets in the way is thinking of music as merely internal. Why not think of it as a window into something like the truth about the way things are that perhaps the sense of sight can't give us? Um, for example, in music, I am perceiving, experiencing, feeling tensions. I can infer those tensions from a work of art visual art, but in music, I'm directly in touch with them. So it's as though they're putting music is putting me in touch with something vital about the way things are, not by virtue of not being pictorial. That's what Schopenhauer is uh, keying into, because he thinks ultimately at the bottom of everything is the will, hmm. this infinite longing that music can capture better than anything else in the world. So that I don't mean to subscribe to Schopenhauer's metaphysics. I, I don't. But I think Schopenhauer did realize in his own way that music was that deep and was had metaphysically significant means what? It means has some connection with the way things are at their deepest level. I think music has that connection. Uh, I have not 
even begun to understand uh, how it does or what it reveals to us. I have some inklings, I have some notions, but uh, it's, it's a question I would like to spend a lot more time thinking about. Could you talk a bit about the inklings and the notions? Well, again, it must have something to do with the uh, soulful, dynamic, inward character of being, that it's not merely pictorial, being is not merely things. Uh, it has something to do with the interconnection of things through some sort of tension, dynamism, maybe the sort of thing Heraclitus talked about when he thought that tension was at the source of all things. So uh, you started one of your recent remarks by saying that you thought it was wrong to put music, to categorize music um, as a fine art, not because the fine arts right. aren't interesting, but because it limits the questions that yes. you can ask about music. Very much so. Uh, so in a way, what you're describing is you, I mean, you want to, you want to not even to bring music into conversation with philosophy, but to treat music as a kind of doing philosophy, as a kind of philosophical and musical thinking. That if, if that's one, if that's one thing, I think, I think perhaps you might be saying. I guess my question is this: so, what uh, the task you seem to be setting out for yourself in many ways um, is to write about music, to describe, explore, advance an argument about a piece of music that many writers about music wouldn't do. Because yes. because it's treated as a fine art, and so the questions that many writers ask about music are very particular. Mm -hmm. and you're trying to ask different questions, or it's an historical artifact. Okay, and yeah, so you yeah. would explain it in terms of genres and the way people composed at that time, mm. or the way Mozart composed, or what his influences were. So um, how, those those all, all of those things are useful, but they don't get to the heart of the question. So how do you? In many ways, it seems like you must not have that many examples of writing about music in the way that you'd like to or many contemporary examples um how do you ground when, when you're attempting to make an argument about a piece of music yes. what do you ground it in like well, what do you find yourself saying that's a good question uh i find myself responding as a listener but then as a, a listener who seeks understanding i pose various questions and most of all i hold myself to the discipline of searching in the details for clues as to what might be most central to this piece of music. In uh, the case of Tamino's love song from the Magic Flute, it was the use of scale degrees three, two, and one, and the importance of the opening rising major sixth. And so those became uh, an inroad. They gave me a pathway into the work, and then I wanted to connect it with what was going on at the opera in that, at that time. How does the unfolding of the aria show us something about what Tamino's soul, as he gazes upon Pamina's picture, is going through, and where does he end up, and why is this kind of, what does this kind of music show us, tell us about love of that sort? So I'd like to ask, I, I have... That's not a complete, these are efforts at answers, these are not... They're essays, <laughs> they're not com These are not complete answers, yes. Uh, so I'd like to ask a bit about you and try to sort of link... Sure perhaps your upbringing and the questions you've been asking as a student of music. You've been a student of music in many ways for a long time. Yes. Certainly in different senses. So first question, uh, where were you born and raised? Uh, I was born in Shenandoah, Pennsylvania and raised there. Um, father was a coal miner. I was introduced to music in two ways, rock and roll and the uh, hymns that the nuns taught us at St. Casimir's Parochial School. Were you drawn to one over the other, or did you appreciate both in different ways? I love them both. 
uh, my poor parents, when I was little, I would sit them down and perform all of these songs for them um, till they couldn't stand it anymore. Hymns, or did you have a guitar? Or? Oh, I sang the you know the songs we learned at school. But then later, uh, I discovered what I really wanted to do was play drums in a garage rock band. Okay. Which I did and enjoyed immensely, and I miss it. The, the, I didn't discover classical music and hadn't really heard any until I was 18. Did you, um, when, you were, when you were developing your opinions about music and your interests and your taste, um, did you separate the, the sort of rock stuff you were doing from the more classical sort of hymn-based hmm. things? Or, or did, what was their relationship? Huh, I think they led separate lives at that point. And then uh, in my early teens, I was so immersed in rock that no other kind of music mattered. Any bands? Yeah, I was in several bands, played nightclubs and played bars and dances and whatever. But then when I got to college, I took a music appreciation course and heard Bach and Mozart for the first time and was blown away. And I thought, that's it for me. That's what I want to devote my life to studying. You wanted to study it. You didn't necessarily want to compose. Well, I didn't know enough at that point to want to compose. I was too enthralled by the beautiful music of especially Mozart. So uh, you mentioned in at least one recent essay um, uh, that you end this essay actually just by pointing out what you were talking about before, which is that the philosopher Schopenhauer simply loved music yes. and, and just enjoyed yes. the, the pleasure of the act of listening. Uh, you, you share this pleasure. Um, you write that, quote, music, even the saddest music in the world is dear to us and makes us happy. If only for a while, maybe this is because music is a living presence that comes to us, offers itself to us, assures us that we are not alone. Um, thanks to music, we experience what it means to be connected to the whole of all things, even when that whole seems tragic. Can you remember a moment or moments where you were particularly moved by a song or a composition or a symphony in the way you describe? That is, that is you felt wow. moved by music, even if you felt like you saw the tragedy of well, the whole of that. That is a very good question. Um... I think parts of uh, Mozart's G minor symphony affected me like that when I was younger. I mean, Mozart isn't known for being a dark composer, but there are tragic moments. Um, I certainly feel like that. What I did, when I was writing that, uh, what was on my mind very much was Pamina's aria of despair in the Magic Flute when she thinks Tamino doesn't love her. And it is, uh, it is overwhelmingly tragic. And yet, like tragedy, there's something in it that we take pleasure in. And I think music has the advantage that it does console by virtue of being um, beautiful. This might be a strange question, but um, uh, in many ways, I think if, if someone has recently experienced something tragic, they'll go to music as a way to hear the tragedy that they're feeling yes. in formal terms. Yes, yes. Um, or perhaps they are in a happy stage of life or in a happy moment, and they hear a song and it recalls for them uh, something that was tragic, and it, and it allows them to recapture that feeling of tragedy. Um, when you first started to encounter the particularly tragic aspects, say, of, of, of that piece of Mozart... Do you associate that with like events in your life that were particularly difficult, or do you? 
I do. It's yeah. hard not to. Okay. It's hard to be just what universally meditative about such things because music, you know, it strikes our the particulars of our hearts. You know, the things we've loved, the things we've lost. Yes. It does. But it also right, uh, takes us above those things. That's what Schopenhauer, I think, rightly understood, that, that Pamina was, in singing, in some sense transcending her particular condition and giving voice to it, that it took on a kind of form that was uh, immediately understandable by any human being who could sympathize with loss or even disappointment. So... Um, there can be a beauty to grief, a beauty to loss, a beauty to sadness. And she certainly, Mozart certainly captures that in her, in that G minor aria. And for audience members, or for you when you're listening to a piece like that, and you see that, th- that the form has brought the tragedy into a kind of state of beauty, do you think that that does anything to your feeling of tragedy? Like when you're listening to, to that, does it... Um, I don't want to say, does it give you hope in a time of tragedy? What does it do? That's a really good question. I've been thinking about that a lot, actually. Um, I'm not sure. I guess in a way it does give us hope because we wouldn't be singing unless there was something something to be gained by the singing. Hmm. I'm not sure it's merely self-expression. I think it's the effort to focus on something, uh, hold it in one's mind, uh, hold it in the soul. So, um, yeah, I like to think that there's some hope even in the even in the saddest music, although some of it is very sad indeed, in say in operas or uh, in various uh, tragic arias. Um, but I think it's consoling to have form to what one is feeling. It's the formless, I think, that tends to drive us crazy and make us think that we have no, that we're that our lives are meaningless. Music saves us from meaninglessness. You've, you've simply by even if even hope even if hope were not in the picture, it would give form and focus to something overpowering. In this sense, grief. Which composers um, do you find yourself sort of going? You've, you've mentioned Mozart. You yes. mentioned Bach, Bach. Excuse me. You also, I think, mentioned Wagner. Are there are there certain composers you find yourself most drawn to going back to most often because they give the right kind of form in yeah. a sense to your? Yeah, it's interesting because even I would say outside the context of emotionally overpowering, very dramatic music, there are the composers of the 16th century, and I find them in some ways my favorite. And that would be uh, Palestrina, Josquin, Lassus, William Byrd. This is before tone har- tonal harmony really comes on. This is before opera. In fact, it was the music that the founders of opera in Italy wanted to turn against because it did not allow for, the full, for a full enough range of emotional expression. They weren't interested in emotional expression. They were interested in the perfect musical composition that would allow several voices to move together with a kind of freedom and yet be uh, make a harmonic whole, sound beautiful together. And so there's a kind of uh, ethereal majesty about those pieces. Could you talk about... I find just gorgeous, that's, breathtaking. Well, it's so interesting because you. it sounds like what you just said is that um, the, the, the sort of founders of opera were turning against... These composers, in large part, because they didn't allow for the the form 
you're kind of you were describing a certain kind of form. They weren't allowing for well, let us say, uh, singers pouring their hearts out. But uh, based on what you were just saying about seeing tragedy in music, that seems mm -hmm. ironic to me that you wouldn't necessarily then be totally attracted to opera. Um, that instead you were attracted to this form of music. It's different before kind that. of form. Yes, yeah, some forms of music have more subjectivity in them than others. Uh, the music of the, uh, the, the, uh, the the Monteverdi and all the music that follows it, including Bach and Mozart, tend to be that, that music tends to be emotionally charged, mm -hmm. dramatic. Cadences alone, the perfect cadence, bum bum, a very dramatic event, and you don't find that in earlier music. There's something more subtle fluid, more based on Gregorian chant. And I think we tend to lose sight of that in our tendency to think that music somehow progresses. It doesn't merely progress. It loses things along the way as new things come in. So I think, we, I think we've tended to lose the sublime spirit of 16th century composition. Some composers keep it. Modern composers keep it. Yeah. Uh, and I tend to like the composers who try to keep it. Which, which, well, I have two questions about that. First, mm -hmm. which, which modern composers try to keep it? There's a contemporary composer. Well, I would say uh, Durifle certainly tries to keep it. Um, uh, Poulenc, to some extent, tries to keep it. There's a contemporary composer, Norwegian composer, Ola Jelo, whose music we just sang in, uh, in, in, a, con in a spring concert in the chorus I, uh, I conduct this past spring, uh, he is very strongly influenced by the tradition of chant and 16th century polyphony. And yet he does it in his own modernist way. So I, I, I very much like his music because it does that. Bruckner would be another example of a, of a composer deeply influenced by Wagner, but he also was very deeply influenced by Gregorian chant. And second, you said that it's a common assumption that there should be a kind of progress. Or that there is. Or in that, music, or that there is. Somehow, we have all sorts of historical prejudices that we bring to the study of everything. Yeah, could you talk about that, what you call this historical prejudice? What, 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 could you define what this is? this prejudice is and why you think it's wrong? Well, most simply, I think we, we, we tend to think that somehow just because a lot of time has gone on, we're living in a much more enlightened age or that everything is better. Some things are indeed better. I would not want to live in a world that didn't have the advances of modern science. But uh, things do get lost. There are crises. There is a certain sense for certain kinds of beauty that, uh, that sometimes gets lost. Uh, I think the idea is that the new has to be better than the old. Who says? I find that sometimes to be true and often to be simply false. I'd like to ask a bit as well about St. John's. We were talking about this before. And, you know, uh, the... Oh, I, wait, could I, could I say one more thing oh, about, about that? About yeah. that possible? I think our study of this might, in fact, be a good transition to your, the, the line of questioning you're taking up now. Uh, mathematics, as you know, is a very important part of the St. John's program. And even though we do our math in roughly a chronological order, it's not for the sake of being historical that we do that. Uh, we want to begin with Greek mathematics because Greek mathematics tends to open up possibilities for mathematical thinking that got lost uh, and were rejected in a modern understanding of algebra and analytic 
an analytic approach to mathematics. So at St. John's, we try to be, not, it's not simply to be fair to the historical unfolding of mathematics, but to give our students the opportunity to think along um, beautiful, profound lines of thinking in uh, Euclid and Apollonius, that uh, thinking in terms of un trying to understand shape, an understanding of number that isn't the modern understanding of number, and then to go to the transition to modern mathematics. So again, it's not to be historically accurate. Yet mm. That's a kind of accident. It, 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 that just turns out to be the most prudent way to do it. Since, since Euclid is not referring to Descartes, but Descartes is referring to Euclid, it makes sense to do Euclid first. But it has this advantage of opening up the students' minds to a non-modern and always available kind of mathematical thinking. So, uh, does that make sense? That, that that that's that certainly makes sense. And actually, you're absolutely right. That was one line of questioning I was hoping to go down with respect to um, your, the, you know, the way you as a thinker, um, as well as as a teacher and tutor, have developed at St. John's. Because how many how many years have you been here? Forty. Forty years. Um, so, I, in many ways, what we've been talking about your positions on music, as well as uh, this sort of general understanding of um, skepticism about the notion, like the the total belief in this notion of um, of progress yes. in music and in other areas. Um, a lot of these positions, you certainly have come to, in a sense, philosophically, but I have to imagine you've also come to them kind of pedagogically. Mm -hmm. Just by the act of, of being a tutor here for 40 years. Very you, much so. Could you talk a bit about that? Oh, yes. We learn in company with our students. In fact, I would say, this is certainly true in my case. I wouldn't be surprised if it's true in the cases of other tutors as well. When we hear about St. John's, and we, we're not alums, when we're just out in the world in ordinary academia, and we hear about St. John's College, I, the first thing I thought of was, not so much teaching here, but coming to learn, to, to further my education by coming here. And that in some ways is primary for all of us, even while we're trying to be good tutors. Tutor, by the way, uh, to or to guard, to watch over, to be vigilant, not to teach, not to profess. And so, since so many of us have not studied in graduate school many of the things that we're teaching, we're inevitably students at the same time that we're teachers. So we study along with the students. Um, they are free to question what we say. They are free to correct us. Uh, and we're all in it together. We guide, but we do not hold authoritative opinions. So you, um, you got your PhD at Penn State? In philosophy. In philosophy. Um, and I mean... It's, it strikes me that if you're at a place like St. John's, in many ways, as you say, you came here very deliberately. Yes. It's a unique kind of place. Yes. Could you talk about, you, you sort of gestured toward a lot of these points, but in what ways is not only teaching here, but perhaps being a student here or just living in the community, how is it different from the modern university? Oh, my heavens. It was a shock to me because I had never experienced anything like a discussion class to this extent. I had certain so-called seminars in uh, graduate school that allowed for a certain amount of discussion, but they weren't completely given to discussion as all of our classes are at St. John's. So that, that, was, uh, that was a shock. And believe me, it is far easier to give a lecture 
before many students in a classroom than it is to guide a discussion. Because when you guide a discussion, you have to listen to other people. You have to listen to where the conversation is going. That is far more strenuous, I would say. The reason for it is the faculty of judgment, not merely intellect, is, has to be alive at every moment. So you're not merely trying to get to certain points that, that you think are good or even deep. You have to ask yourself what will help the discussion at this point. Do I enter? Do I hold back? Do I ask a question? Which one? What will help? And you ha obviously, one has to learn that by doing. Nobody can, nobody can teach you how to do that. So it's trial and error. And that was, that was uh, the, sort of the shock of responsibility for a discussion. So, and in that sense, it would, it seem, as you, as you point out, would require a kind of, um, if you're doing it right, in a yeah. sense, would require a kind of intellectual um, um, presence, as well as a kind of vulnerability. True. Um, yes, well put. If you've been doing this for 40 years, I imagine the positions you had when you started out, you don't have today. Mm -hmm. uh, d philosophical positions, positions on music. How, ha how have you developed as a thinker? Oh, man. That's a great question. Uh, well, first, uh, a funny story. Uh, I came here and I thought, wow, the St. John's program is terrific. Mathematics, physics, philosophy, Greek. Yes, sign me up. French? You've got to be kidding me. And then uh, I finally get around to teaching junior and senior language, and I absolutely become this passionate convert to French poetry. Didn't see it coming. Which poets? Baudelaire, oh. Racine, Valéry. I would, I would single out those three. Racine, Baudelaire, and Valéry. So those became poets I wanted to spend a lot of time with, and I very much enjoy going through poems with students in the way that I try to go through pieces of music. These two levels, and to use your word, that one tries to harmonize, you know, in, intense focus on detail, and then searching for the deep things that are in the poem, just as one would in a piece of music. Well, and in many ways that... that so French would be... that. Just, I, I like that story because it's... It's at my expense. Well, but that's yeah. Well, in a sense, I mean, I love French poetry, but I mean, um, in a in a sense, it, that story also points to the another thing about I imagine about being at a place like this or in a great books program such as this is that it requires um, that you develop certain habits of mind that mm -hmm. you know, that sort of fly in the face of the rigorous specialization that academics are sort of forced to yeah. submit themselves to if they're going into the tenure track at like a modern university and that even oh, that yeah. undergraduates and graduate students are socialized into. Um, how has your study of either French poetry or any of the other subjects that you, that you have to keep up with mm -hmm. um, as a tutor here, how, ha how have your understandings of those subjects how have you brought those to bear on your understanding of music? Hmm. Are, are they separate? Or are, do you ask separate questions? I think it works both ways. Because as I was here becoming more educated uh, and, and you know, in, in, engaged in the struggle to learn and to understand, that was happening across the board in everything. And so when I would make what seemed to be an advance in the understanding of music, it would help all my classes. French and music go very well together. I'm very interested in the musicality of language. 
I find that very present, stunningly present in French poetry. And so it becomes a kind of musical inquiry. Um, so, but I think, I think the biggest thing, I was, to go back to the earlier part of your question, I was always someone who had very, very broad interests. And I wanted to study a lot of things outside my major. When I started out in mathematics and physics, and then I went and switched to philosophy, I always wanted to study other things. And music was always somehow in there. Music and language was always somehow in there. So that I was prepared for when I came to St. John's, that sort of uh, being attuned to the echoes and resonances of different kinds of studies, whether it's mathematics and music, astronomy and, mathemat astronomy and music, things of that sort. But I think what I found myself needing to learn the most is how to listen. So I have one more question. Um, does that does that make sense? Because I think that's that at least for me, and I I think it's true for other tutors as well. Knowing how to be a good tutor means learning how to listen more carefully to what is being said and where the conversation is going at any particular time. Peter, I, I love this point you end on with um, on the point of listening. Um, and so my last question for you, I, I talked with, as I said, I talked with Eva Brand before yes. about the importance of the of the feeling of community um, at a place like this, a feeling of intellectual community. And I think, I mean, I'm as I say, we were talking before. Um, I'm at NYU. Mm -hmm. I really love my department. I love being in the academy in that sense. And I found, I found a kind of community in that definitely a kind of intellectual and scholarly community. Yes. But I get the sense that I, I, that there's a different kind of, not necessarily better, but you certainly gain different things from being in the sort of intellectual community that you must be in at St. Yes. John's, which is very close knit. You've known many um, of the same scholars in different fields uh, for years, and you work together in many ways. So I'm wondering if you could talk about that. Oh, what, absolutely. Yeah. The first thing that comes to mind, and I'll put it in terms of a paradox, the fact that our students do not choose their classes is liberation for the community. And here's why. When a student says, uh, well, you know, it's like what, what uh, uh, Edmund says in King Lear. Well, all of our sophomores, juniors, and seniors will know that because they've all read that play. And so this is true across the board. So since the one way of putting it is to say, well, it's a required program. A better way to put it is to say that it's a program we have in common with one another. So it's all ours. So the absence of majors and departments means that we are free to have discussions about anything and everything. And, and what about you? With each other, with students. You know, freshmen are interested in what the juniors are reading. They haven't read the books, but they want to know, what's it like to read Kant? What's that like? <laughs> that's that's <laughs> you a know? question <laughs> one must ask oneself, I suppose. Um, it, but then, so, as well, anyway, that's, what, that's the first thing that occurs to me. But the other is that we really are, uh, the, the, the whole place it really is, it's a community of learning. And so that is something that we try to sustain and hold up as our uh, ideal uh, outside the classroom as well as in. So, for example, it means that no tutor has to feel embarrassed about going to another tutor and saying, I don't understand this problem. Can you give me some help? What, what's this chord here? What's this form of the verb? I don't see it. And so there's just a freedom with which we can be perplexed 
being perplexed is a big part of what we are. I, I know this question may feel limiting for you in some ways, but I'm just wondering sure. what have, who have been some important or what have been some important intellectual relationships you've had here? Like with like with oh, someone like Eva Brand. Well, certainly, uh, I, uh, uh, it's the friendships we form here are a vital part of our happiness here, our flourishing here. Uh, I came to this school because of Jacob Klein, his work on the Mino, his work on Greek mathematics, and I thought of this place and will always think of it as uh, the school where Jacob Klein taught. And I had the good fortune of knowing him shortly before he died and uh, got to be friends with him. And he was a great inspiration for me and still is. Eva has been wonderful <laughs> over the years. She and I are good friends. We've done a lot of things together. And I really cherish our conversation. It's very interesting. We will call each other for the most trivial reasons and then end up having these deep, wonderful conversations that only good friends can have. Eric Salem, my other good friend, um, we read things together. Uh, we talk about things, talk about our classes. So um, I could go on. There are many, many people um, whom, who I love speaking with and uh, help my own learning and add to my happiness at this school. Peter, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. You're welcome. It's my, my pleasure. Thank you. That was Peter Kalkovich, a tutor at St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland. Common Ground is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Howenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney. Kadar Jabbar edits the podcast, and Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. The Howenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Howenstein's life of leadership and service. Our programs address many of the most pressing issues in American life. Our annual Progressive Conservative Conference challenges leading thinkers on the left and the right to explore the possibility of common ground, and to redefine their respective traditions. Our annual conference on the Midwest, which is happening this week, brings together academics and journalists to discuss the cultural and political significance of the region that's often called flyover country. And of course, the center is itself a center for presidential studies, and it's been quite a year for the presidency. To learn more about our programs, visit HowensteinCenter.org and follow HowensteinGVSU on Facebook and Twitter. You can also follow me on Twitter at Joe Hogan CGI. Thanks for listening. I'm Joseph Hogan. This has been Common Ground.